Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. I'm Benesh Maid and this week we're looking back in the archive, spending some time immersed in 2015's Transcender Festival, reveling in the ecstatic, devotional and psychedelic music of Atom TM and Robin Fox. It's, it's actually a megalomaniacal feeling sometimes and you're just pressing some, some buttons on a controller and the entire room is kind of exploding with sound and light. Arifa. We don't do a concert two times the same way. We never perform the tunes twice the same way. Phase Ali Phase. Songs. You don't, uh, it don't require language actually. It happens on musical language. And Leo Abrahams and David Coulter. Uh, although I'm not a music historian, I see that record and the way that that record was talked about and described as being a real milestone in uh, electronic music, certainly, and in the development of what we understand as ambient music now. The sixth year of the Transcender Festival back in 2015 had pretty much everything, from laser-guided melodies to the never-performed live ambient masterpiece, Discrete Music. All of this reached across East London, including Village Underground and the Union Chapel. Let's begin by exploring Double Vision, a collaboration between deconstructed pop producer Atom TM and multimedia artist Robin Fox, a sensory overload of lasers, video and sounds. I spoke to Atom TM or Uva Schmidt in South America and on the other side of the world in Australia, I spoke to Robin Fox. Uva spoke first. Let's start at the beginning then. I mean, where did this collaboration begin? We didn't actually meet. Um, I saw his... Uh, solo performance, the Green Laser performance, which he showed at the Adelaide Festival three years ago. I was really inspired by uh, what he does. So we met at the Adelaide Festival. I was doing my monochromatic laser show, which is a very literal translation of sound to light, where the relationship is that the, the signal that you see and the signal that you hear is exactly the same electrical signal. And so it's quite it's sort of a noise work that I've been touring for a very long time. Anyway, um, Uva saw that show. I think he got a sense that there was something about what was happening that, that resonated with him. So anyway, that, that was how it kind of started. And then and then Uva planted the seed with Matt from Unsound. Uva and I both, you know, we chatted over Skype and uh, hatched a plan, I guess. And I was really intrigued by what he wanted to do, which was to take this more scientific model that I was working with and fuse it with the kind of... I, I don't like calling his sensibility a pop sensibility because it's very different for me what he makes from pop music but you know it's often referred to as deconstructed pop music interestingly um i mean it's it's always a, a little bit of a risk 
collaborating with somebody you don't know, it was very, very easy from the start. I mean, we had to basically plan everything um, offline, let's say, not in real time, like talking via email, um, totally unsynchronized. He was in a different mode than I was. He was traveling when I was home and vice versa. He's in Australia. It's a 12-hour time difference. So everything was very mental, I would say. Like, we had to really think about it. When it's good is really about that kind of experimental mindset, I think. It's about, it's about um, a real synthesis or a real coming together of ideas and, and things coming out of those meetings that are greater than, other than what you could have made on your own, I guess. When we, when we were finally in the room together, we only had a certain amount of time to put together, you know, truly merged uh, sections of work. But then we'd, we'd both been working on a lot of material uh, for the project that seemed to kind of sit, you know, quite quite comfortably on its own. And so we decided that we would, we would highlight the individual within the collaboration as well. So there would be, yeah, mo- moments where Uber is performing and moments where I'm performing. It, it, it's, a, it's a truer collaboration in a sense. We have quite an array of possibilities at hand um, in terms of different technologies and different um, atmospheres or energies. Like what what he's doing with the laser is very different from from what um, two dimensional video allows allows you to do or the effect it has. We had a lot of freedom, let's say, in different ways of of combining things. To be honest, though, I think it's the merge sections for me that I find most satisfying because I guess. When you collaborate, it's that creation of the new. So when we're actually playing together and, and sort of bouncing off each other live, that's, that's for me the most satisfying part of the performance. Were you surprised how the audience reacted when you did perform live? Actually, yes. And interestingly, we didn't really, or I at least, I don't know about Robin, but when we planned the show, we, it was very clear for us that we had to perform it from the from uh, front of house, from the you know, not not from stage, because we we are playing actually um, the the video and and the laser, so we have to see it, um, so we have to be on the other side, and the audience obviously is looking towards the the stage and the screen, and we are not there. <laughs> there are passages there where we um, where we play together, which I which I really get involved with, and I don't want them to end, you know, and sometimes. There's a danger in, in all modes of performance that being in the moment performing it is much more interesting than experiencing it, <laughs> you know, as from an audience point of view. So you always have to keep that sort of thing in check. And there, there are some improvised passages from, you know, where I'm just playing playing the lasers and, and the, the sound and the light. Are, it's, it's actually a megalomaniacal feeling sometimes to be in a huge room and you're just pressing some some buttons on a controller, and the entire room is kind of exploding with sound and light. It's a it's a it's a weird feeling. There's a disproportionate sort of godlike feeling in, in in the small gesture that you make, and the sort of huge eruption that happens as a result. I kind of wanted to finish by going back to the beginning again, and and, and talking about um, the collaboration. You obviously didn't know this at the start, but w- what have you kind of discovered that you and uh, Uva having common. I mean, you both have obviously a, a strong sense of humour. Yeah, it's true. Actually, we we do have a very good time uh, on tour, which is very important. But we yeah, we have we have a lot in common, I and mean, we we both. I think we're both just really interested in 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 the human, you know, the condition of being human, and and in the the way the world works. And we we have we have discussions ranging from 
you know, new branches of, of esoteric mathematics through to all kinds of, you know, uh, philosophies of mind. and Like whenever we, we talk about music, we actually, we have very much the same taste, <laughs> but like really standing on the different, um, different extremes of the same spectrum, maybe, if, if I can say that. So, yeah, I think we are... We have uh, very similar, very similar interests and very similar philosophies, maybe even. So, and with a, with a sense of humor, definitely. It, I mean, it's laser um, performance, of course, lacks any hu humor in that sense. It's a very, it's a very abstract kind of um, uh, demonstration of physics. While working with video, the way I do to address different types of um, information and communication, and humor for me um, has always been an important element yeah and then we, and then of course we discuss music and and art and things that we find inspirational or or annoying but um certainly the sense of humor is is key and what, but what i've learned about it i guess is it's what, what i've learned from from the collaboration is that it's something that's like, okay great this is you know this is something that people will really love but at the same time it's something that unlike anything they've ever seen before so we managed to create something quite remarkable And that um, and that feels really good, actually. It's very satisfying. We're pretty much on the same wavelength with with this kind of stuff, um, and I, w I would say we are we're very um, similar in that in that sense. Next, we return to the main hall of the Barbican and two of Pakistan's most extraordinary musicians who provided two entrancing sides of spiritual Sufi music: Faiz Ali Faiz and Zain Zahoor. Back at the time of the concert, songline Simon Broughton caught up backstage in the Czech Republic with Faze Ali Faze. As he only speaks Urdu, you'll also be hearing from his manager, Yasser Norman, translating his words and thoughts into English. Simon began by asking how he was feeling about his then upcoming performance in London. London actually always have in my viewpoint because whenever I heard about Nusuf Ali Khan performed in London, so I always I was so keen and thinking that someday I also have this chance to perform in London which uh, later somehow I uh, got the chance to perform there. But uh, London for me always is a challenge because it's not only uh, to sing for the uh, European people, but also for my compatriots who are many there. So I am looking forward to perform this concert in September also. And does that mean it's a warm response because there are compatriots and, and Pakistanis in Britain? Um. Yes, I am very hopeful because knowing that, that many Pakistani will be there because uh, I know that they uh, only appreciated Nusfat Ali Khan there. So I am feeling that uh, they will like my performance also there and uh, I am very hopeful that they will give me good appreciation. But you don't have to be Pakistani to enjoy this music, to enjoy Kowali. I, I don't understand the language but I enjoy I enjoy it very much. So why, 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 why do I enjoy it as well? Actually, when I perform, I, I think that when I will perform, if my competitors will go for my language, the people like you, they will go for the musical things. My sound patterns, my rhythmic uh, the variation, you will enjoy that. Because you will follow the musical language. They will follow the words of the language. Music, music, Actually, for music, musical numbers or these uh, songs, it don't uh, it don't require language. Actually, it had its own musical language. 
which is uh, universal. Our next excursion into a new hybrid musical language is with Amsterdam-based quartet Arifa. Their music goes beyond genre and geographical boundaries, and in the project Voices from the East, they grow in number with guest musicians Zayoxai Meng from China, Mayusha Beramani from Iran, and Vanya Volkova from Bulgaria. Arifa percussionist Sajin During joined me to discuss this melting pot of world sounds which they brought to Islington's Union Chapel back in 2015. Could we start at the beginning for the group? I mean, how did it all form? How did this come about? We had a group before called Tarhana, which is a name of a Turkish soup. It was a little bit bigger and we were trying to reach younger audience. So there was a Bulgarian drum set player, keyboards, electric bass. Sass player, Turkish singer, Franz von Chossi was there and Alex von Klarnet was also there. This group toured quite a bit around the world and a lot in the Middle East and in India and we somehow never managed to get in the young, younger people to the concerts. Then by, they sent us to Iran, they asked three people from Tarhana to go to Iran and to work with Persian musicians for a couple of concerts. So we went and um, the, the group was supposed to play Holland but in the last minute it got cancelled. And then in that time I was actually also uh, started this quartet, but instead of cancelling the concert I offered Arifa, which never played before. But this concert was in a beam house, so that's the main concert hall of Holland, the most important jazz world music. And we got the next day a five-star uh, uh, review in one of the best newspapers in Holland. So that was the very beginning of Arifa, how it started. It means you must have got something right. I mean, there must have been great chemistry between all of the players. This music was not about uh, trying to rock the place or put the place upside down. There's nothing easy about it and we don't make compromises and we don't play existing tunes which people recognize or we don't play easy grooves. So everything is alt meters, a lot of improvisations, it's concert music to listen to and somehow there's nothing commercial about it but it came out much more commercial worldwide than all the other stuff we did before. We don't do a concert two times uh, the same way. We never perform the tunes twice the same way. You travel a lot. That must have a big impact on you. Yeah, especially in the beginning. I mean, visiting all these countries like, let's say, Tunisia, India, Iran, Syria, Lebanon, Turkey. Uh, We also played in Cuba. We also went many times to Mexico, Colombia. And always we were asked, like, can you do something with the musicians, which was always a huge pleasure, and also to work closely and learn from them, and Gypsies from Rajasthan, last once we played with a Syrian oud player, singer, we played with Ainur sometimes, the Kurdish singer, the new CD is of course with the three ladies, so that's always very exciting projects and uh, collaborations, meetings. The project is, is very exciting and it's actually just the beginning. It's very much developing and, and uh, we are getting to learn each other. And after uh, Holland 8 concerts, we did several concerts in France. This will be the third tour 
in the UK and the CD will be released. So I'm expecting for the world, it's still a very new project. So it's not available and still a lot of things are going to happen. For the girls, it was very interesting because they come from uh, traditional music. So in the beginning, they did not really get uh, how we work and what is our concept. And uh, we try to understand each person which we invite in their instrument and their musical culture. But then we kind of try to blend in with what we do. So we are not playing uh, three traditional Bulgarian songs and then three traditional Iranian and then three Chinese. We try to integrate, but in the same time um, understand. But these ladies, they, they, they also play instruments, but they come from uh, yeah, China, for example. Can you imagine China, if you're one of the best Erhu players, how tough that must be, also the training and how many Erhu players there exist and the Chinese communistic approach. And that also counts for Iran, you know, with their system and being a woman and, you know, it's like all very tough. And Bulgaria also have this communistic background. So we, we noticed in the beginning with the ladies we were rehearsing, sometimes like uh, seven, eight hours a day. At the end of the day we'd say, are you okay? Yeah, yeah, shall we call it a day? And they would say, okay, you know, no complaints, nothing. Like very used to, uh, to work makes things happen and very different, let's say. Are you looking forward to coming to London and performing this? Absolutely. We were there last year on the London Jazz Festival, which was fantastic. Uh, a lot of people, we've never played in the uh, UK, so that's not so easy. And because of that, we were invited this year by Barbican, which is a big surprise. And, uh, so we are quite proud of that. Lastly, to an artist who never looks back, there are many different Brian Enos, the producer, the musician, the artist, and the architect of Sound, Light and Chance. To mark the 40th anniversary of his album Discrete Music, musical directors David Coulter and musician and producer Leo Abrahams brought together a team of expert musicians, improvisers, and some vintage electronic equipment to perform a reimagining of this classic ambient album live for the first time. To explain their plans, I caught up with Leo in London and David in the States via Skype. First, to Leo's London studio. It's an album that wasn't designed to be performed live, so you're already starting an uphill battle. <laughs> yes, I like to look at concerts as going into battle. Lots of people to organise, um, catering requirements, <laughs> um, the threat of obliteration, reputation-wise, if not physical. Lots of, lots of similarities there, Ben. Thanks for that. I feel better <laughs> just talking to you. Yes, it was not intended to be performed, uh, but that's a sort of an inspiring challenge, really, to come up with uh, ways to frame it in a way that honours that original intention. And it is the 40th anniversary sort of celebration of that piece. So rather than a, a reconstruction slavish, uh, which Brian wouldn't like, uh, we decided to do something which was something more in line with what he enjoys, which is new things. You're working on this with David Coulter. David approached me. Um, it was his idea. And he'd already written a proposal. He's the most positive and persuasive person I think I've ever met. And he announced... He announced his idea to me, sort of like those people who announce film trailers, <laughs> revealing small parts of it. As, as uh, We conceptualised the show together. Um, we had a meeting and, and developed ideas about how to present it, exactly what you just said, how to get around the fact that it's not a performance piece as such. This album has been described as maybe one of the first or the first uh, of 
the idea of ambient music. I mean, it's very hard to define what that means. Yeah, it is. Um, Brian has a term called senius, which is, it relates to the idea that progressions in art or in society are sort of in, they're in the air, so to speak. And there are lots of fortuitous coincidences that happen as ideas crystallize within a society or within an artistic society. He is, I think, rightfully credited as being the inventor of ambient music. He also, part of that is defining what ambient music is. It's initiating a movement. I don't think that works of art are these totems and and so that after one of them's created, we now suddenly have a, la- a new language of ambient music. But personally, uh, although I'm not a music historian, I see that record and the way that that record was talked about and described as being a real milestone in uh, in electronic music certainly and in the development of what we understand as ambient music now as a listening experience it's a little bit like you're hearing some either musicians or instruments maybe or even robots in a room who are happily sort of talking and playing to themselves you're like eavesdropping on a conversation or or, or that's what it kind of feels like well i think that's a really interesting point that you make because uh, when that whole ambient movement was born was kind of i think it was pretty much inspired by the eric satie concept of of music de meublement which you know which translates as furniture music which is you know it's it's not ever really supposed to be the main focus it's it's kind of just sort of like supposed to exist in a space and i think that's always been for me what is the the really interesting challenge about this which is one of the main reasons why i actually wanted to do it because you know how do you how do you actually stage this kind of music which is supposed to be kind of incidental to everything else that you're doing it's not that it's voyeuristic music but i think it's, it's a different way of listening and I think that's always been what's really, really, really fascinated me about certain forms of music. You just have to surrender yourself to it and, and almost like just kind of give yourself over to listening in a different way. When I was thinking about conceptualising this show, I realised that a lot of, well, the, one of the functions of technology is to streamline. And so when you go and see an electronic music show now, it, the, the, the equipment is, is very streamlined. It, it's quite easy to carry things around, really. You can carry your show under your arm. Whereas at that time, it was quite cumbersome. And I would like to celebrate the cumbersome nature of that (laughs) technology because strangely, it it becomes a spectacle in itself. Mm. I think tape machines are beautiful and I think old synthesizers are beautiful. It's getting rarer that they're seen out and about, both professionally in in my job and certainly in public. and, And strangely, in the face of what we have now technology-wise, there, there's a touching humanity to those things, not, not in a Heath Robinson kind of way because they're absolute, they remain absolutely beautiful feats of engineering. I think Leo and I both, you know, having produced records and, you know, if you look at both mine and Leo's sort of CVs, you know, we've both worked with some pretty amazing people over the years and continue to do so. It keeps it all fresh and it kind of means that, you know, after 30 something years of earning, you know, earning a a basic living, I suppose, you know, from playing music, why we still want to do it and why we still do it. And I think that's why, Brian himself, you know, he's constantly, he's constantly pushing the boundaries and constantly just trying to make 
new stuff. So I think, yeah, I think that spirit of adventure and collaboration will be very present in this discrete music thing. And that is very definitely informed by, you know, the kind of the, the example of Brian the Great. You know, it's uh, because, you know, let's face it, he, he has been a very, very important person in the history of British contemporary music, I think it's fair to say. And, um, you know, I'm very, very flattered and honoured that, that he's entrusted Leo and I with with this, with his original seed. I mean, obviously, you know, we're going to cultivate a completely different plant from it. But, you know, without the, without the seed from the original plant, we, we wouldn't really be able to do it. The other thing that comes into play when you're obviously playing um, using old technology and things like that is chance. It's, it's obviously something that's fundamental to, to his vision. There's an interesting juxtaposition of the chance element and the systemic element of the music because discrete music and the Pachelbel or Pachelbel variations, I should say, are systems music essentially, albeit systems music guided by one's ear and one's hand as an editor. I think, I mean, I get nervous about speaking for him, but all I've observed from the years that I've worked with him is he's a very playful person. He's a very uh, intuitive person. I think he pleases himself, essentially. He makes the art that, that he wants to experience, whether it's visual art or audio art. Obviously, he has a vocabulary. He has actually quite a wide vocabulary. I mean, some of his recent releases have been more to do with Afrobeat than ambient. There's a really wide variety there. But sure, I mean, I think even given his aversion to, to being pigeonholed, he's, he, has, he has this language, which uh, I think he's still interested in exploring. But I'm interested to maybe there's also some other great people involved, like celloist Oliver Coates and uh, The Necks and, and, and um, Michael Nyman's uh, famous saxophonist, John Hall. So what, what were the sort of decisions about bringing th- those musicians on board? Well, The Necks were a part of... Um, Pure Seniors, which were the concerts that I was also involved in with Brian at the Sydney Opera House, uh, which were three um, completely improvised shows within the space of one one day. And the next, as I'm sure everyone is aware, are absolute masters of, of long-form improvisation. Brian loves them. They really like Brian, and it just seemed like an obvious, an obvious thing to involve them. Holding one's nerve in a semi-improvised kind of state is a is a really serious skill, and and that that's not to be reductive. It's not just holding one's nerve. It's also building without building too much. And I, I can't imagine playing pieces, improvised pieces uh, of thirty-five minutes, forty-five minutes without involving the next because they're pretty much the only people who know how to do it. I think. Mm. Likewise with Benj, I mean, there isn't anyone like him here. Ollie Coates. We went to school together, actually. I made a record with him a couple of years ago. David knows him as well. We were trying to balance, um, I think, the soloist with the ensemble and balance both of those against the technology that's involved. When you, know, when you read into some of the stuff that Brian has said about it in the, in, in the past, one of the things that really interested me was... He did start something that was and has become part of the furniture, if you like, if we sort of use that, you know, if we carry that analogy through. One of the reasons that he felt compelled to do it and one of the things that he had already started doing, 
he was very, very, he said some really interesting things about a lot of the records that were coming out at that time. So, in, you know, in the early, early 70s, where a record would be two sort of 20 minute sides of vinyl, pretty much. And, you know, you would have the ballad, you would have maybe, you know, the instrumental, you maybe have, you know, a couple of the singles. Um, but what, he, what Brian was arguing was that, you know, you put on a record and you would have sort of three minutes to get into a mood, to get into a zone, into a sort of a headspace as you're listening to it, which would be a direct play on your emotions. And then, boom, you know, you'd have a two-second gap between, and then, bam, you'd be straight into, in, into a completely different mood. So what Brian would, would do, he, he said that he, he would actually go through some of his favourite records and just, like, make compilations of, like, all the slow movements of a classical piece or classical records or you know just so he, he would kind of like create these mixtapes that were all in the same kind of mood will brian come along that's i have to ask that <laughs> i don't know i really don't i hope he does I, I hope he comes along and just uh in disguise or something and sits at the back and then slopes off at the end that's what i hope i'd like him to see it you know i would So discreet and oblique, the music of Brian Eno transformed and transcended the hall on the 26th of September 2015. David, Leo and all the musicians for me brought Eno's studio album to the stage with great style and aplomb. I closed my eyes and I definitely got lost in the music from my seat in the audience. I'm Ben Eshmade. Thanks for listening to this archive edition of Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast, here to inspire more people to discover and love the arts with weekly episodes of archive finds and theme series. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on ACAR, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review to help us get the word out. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.